Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Future Food Weekly with myself, Sonali Figueres, your co-host, and Steve Molino. Hey, Steve. Hey, Sonali, how's it going? Oh, you know, just a few little, week, just a little mini weekend trip to Dubai. <laughs> yeah, just that casual, casual Dubai trip, no big deal. Casual, I just went to party in the desert with like 100,000 people who are like kind of into like the climate thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess that just sounds like kind of a big deal. Not really. I don't know. <laughs> How um, was it? How was it? I know like that's what we wanted to, like I want to start there because that's like amazing. How was that? You know, I don't want to be cheesy, but was it amazing to be at this incredible reunion of all these people who so many of which are just so passionate about change and trying to make something happen from all walks of life and all professions. Um, yes, it was. And and for me, an especial highlight was obviously being at the first food, you know, cop, if you will. I mean, that's what I feel it is. Like last year in Sharm El Sheikh, there were a couple of pavilions, but this year food was on the menu, you know, two thirds of everything served there was vegan. Um, we had an official food day for, for me to be able to speak at COP on the official food day. I mean, I, I'll never forget it. And, you know, if, if I'm honest, obviously, am I happy, completely happy with the outcomes? Because by the way, everyone who's listening, COP officially ended today after a delay. Um, we have the final results of the global stock take and um, you know, was food systems prioritized the way I wanted it to be? No. But do I feel that food is on the climate menu in terms of getting its space, getting some space in the discussion? Yes. And that feels, even though it's so late in the game, that feels like an achievement. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, that's, it's just, it hasn't occurred before, right? Like, to, to, like, not to be, not to try to be witty or whatever, but the food has not been on the menu at these types of events in the past. And now, now it is, and it's front and center. And um, I, I'd be curious for, for you, like, you, you were on some panels, you were part of the discussions and, and all that. Was there anything that either you firsthand experienced or you, you heard about happening that was a little surprising or unexpected when it came to like discussing? things in in the food space yeah so so we have this food pavilion where there were five different kind of organizers including people like pro veg and the global cellular alliance there was all this programming every day there were hundreds of events the food day which was the 10th day december 10th there were over 200 food events um but for me the highlight was the on december 10th i went to the official un session you know it in the big auditorium with all the flags and all the ministers and all the UN people. And that was them announcing formally the, the, the FAO. So the UN FAO food and ag organization, um, 1.5 roadmap, 1.5 degree roadmap. So that was what everyone was waiting for in food, right? Because it was this big thing. And I had been the whole week I had been part of, well, I, I am part of this, this really incredible WhatsApp community organized by this amazing guy called Oliver Camp. And what he did is he reunited everyone at COP that was working in food systems and looking for food system change. So you had activists, you had journalists, you had scientists, you had investors, you had founders, you had you know people running just different kinds of organizations, think tanks, et cetera. 
And we were all in this WhatsApp group and we were getting a more of a live play-by-play -play of negotiations throughout the week for all the big announcements. And so 24 hours prior, we had seen the draft for the roadmap and realized that food was basically not mentioned. Um, and so um, there was this last ditch attempt for 24 hours for everyone in the group who was somehow connected to any kind of minister from their own country um, to really push the ministers to to basically put food in them in it, to to make a to basically say more about food systems change, and so during the announcement, um, it, you know, it was it was a two hour session announcing the roadmap, and there was one point where they brought on five agricultural minist ministers of agriculture. So you had France, you had Germany, you had the U.S., and you had uh, Fiji, and then you had Rwanda, and the Rwanda minister of agriculture went off script and basically just called out food systems as absolutely key for solving climate change. And it was, it was incredible to be in the room and hear him do that. And at the same time, I was on the WhatsApp group and everyone was cheering. And even in the room, there were like whoop whoops. And I mean, in this like very formal setting and he he did you know what no one had expected and it was incredible and then one of the people in the group said that they had been lobbying him the whole day before and the whole night to to really like stand up for food so it was just that those are the kind of moments that you know you can only get live and for for us to for me to have been there and experienced that it, it just felt really incredible no, I mean, that's amazing. And and like the idea of going off script, like that's the type of stuff that we need to happen at these types of events, because if not, then everything goes as planned and the plans to your point, if, if no one's pushing for change, then the plans kind of just, they push the status quo with a little bit of alterations. Right. So um, to, to hear that, that the, 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 the minister from Rwanda was, was doing that. That's, that's amazing. I'd be curious though, like, it sounds it sounds like they were they were saying they were calling for a food system change which is an absolute necessity where did they like say it in an overall sense like everybody needs to change or was there any focus on like differences of change needed for developed nations or even larger nations because i think of like rwanda is like like they're relatively small like i think they have like less than 15 million people in the country right so like yeah they could change their diet or something like that but was there a call for change or a different call for change for developed or large nations versus, there versus absolutely other was. countries. There absolutely was in, in the details. And there's a lot of emphasis on having a different livestock strategy for Africa and for other uh, d uh, developing nations where livestock really is important and, and is not consumed in the same amount. I mean, ideally there would have been more verbiage that was specific to the global north reducing meat consumption. I don't think there was as much of that in the final text of all the different documents because there are many, many documents and it's too many to get in here. Um, we, we've been keeping track on our daily digest um, at Green Queen and today is our last daily digest because COP has officially ended, but we are going to do an overview of all the major food announcements and all the major food funding. So, so pe folks can keep up with like, what are the key pieces of key texts and key 
um, kind of roadmaps and, and, and announcements and, and commitments that have been made. There's a health one, there's the FAO roadmap, there's the GST, there's the GGA. It, it's a lot to keep track of. But no, in his case, he was just making a more general comment within basically that the, the, the key for all of us in the food systems group was, you know, first getting that acknowledgement that food systems are absolutely key on the road to 1.5 degrees and that we cannot get there without changing our food systems and adapting. Um, after that, it becomes about who's saying what and what are the exact uh, commitments and, 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 and actions. And for example, I can tell you that very disappointingly, things like protein diversification, you know, and meat reduction were not you that language or like switching to a plant-based diet, that language was not present in, in any of the docu the final documents. Um, so Interesting. we haven't gotten there yet, you know? Um, yeah. Right yeah, I mean, now, but this the win was getting food on the menu, which again is is not ideal, but it's where we are. Sure, sure, and and I mean, like with that idea of food on, on the menu, like I have to ask this one. I actually am interested, and also at this exact moment, I'm I'm starving. I need to eat. But what was the actual food like there? Because that was a thing, right? That was like one of the this like obviously this isn't big policy or all that, but what I think what was it? Two thirds of the food was the supposed food? to be vegetarian no. or vegan so how was it oh first of all absolutely everywhere you went there was vegan food there was plant-based food there were there were some areas so like there were basically these little food areas that were like little mini food truck kind of uh venues with with picnic tables and in some of them i went to two different ones i mean the venue was massive so i did not go to every single food place no one did i mean there was the green zone there was the official blue zone it was so big getting around was crazy. I mean, nobody managed to do everything in any way, shape or form. I mean, you just felt like you were missing out all the time because it was so big. But the two, I managed to make it to two different food truck areas and that were entirely vegan, which was really cool. And then there were other food truck areas where some of it was vegan, some of it was not vegan. It certainly felt like everything had a vegan option. There were loads of um, plant-based brands represented. And it, it, you know, it always makes me think like when people are like, oh, well, what's the point of plant-based brands? And like, why don't we just eat chickpeas and dal and whatever? And it's like, no, you're missing the point. In situations like this, you can see how valuable all these plant-based brands are and how they provide food service operators with easy solutions. And so there was Tyndall chicken, there was impossible foods in uh, uh, mince and burger. There was beyond meat burgers. There was, um, the, there was two Middle Eastern, uh, well, actually UAE brands, I believe thrive and, um, switch foods. Um, I tried switch foods. It was really good. I had a falafel from them with like a plant-based patty. Um, there were, there was vegan pizza, there was vegan ice cream, there were vegan donuts, there were vegan cookie stands. I mean, there was everything you wanted and there was always I mean, non-dairy milk in every coffee stand and some of the coffee was outstanding. So it was like, you know, no problem. Oat milk, almond milk, it was there. Um, yeah. I mean, very, no, very that's incredible. It felt so inclusive. I never had to think like, what am I going to eat? And in fact, like I was looking forward to eating half the time because there were some really fun, there were bows, there were 
tacos, there were pizzas, there were, uh, there was different, like there were like um, Indian wraps. There were like, there was tons of Middle Eastern food, of course. There was African food. There were, you know, there was Vietnamese food. <laughs> I mean, you name it, they had it. It was, food was- It sounds incredible. And I heard- That's incredible. And I feel like there's, there's like, obviously as a, as a vegan, I'm like, oh, that sounds amazing. A place with so much vegan food and different, different cuisines and cultures and stuff like that. But I think it's like, honestly, it is actually a valuable thing to have that because you think of the people that were at this event, the people attending, and yes, maybe there was a slightly higher proportion of vegans and vegetarians than the general population, just because there's a lot of scientists and, and policymakers that kind of know what's going on in the, in the climate space. But there's also probably a lot of people that are anti all protein, sustainable food, and then being exposed to so much diversity of options that are vegan and vegetarian probably opened their eyes a little bit. Hopefully it did. Exactly. Absolutely. And it, it exactly. And it, optionality is always like my takeaway from these things. Like you do need options and you do need easy wins for food service operators. And you do need to show how delicious it can be to live an animal meat free life. And it is. And I mean, I most I didn't meet anyone who wasn't raving about the food. And of course, if you ate meat, there was some, you know, I didn't see it much, but it was around. Obviously, I wasn't drawn to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was delicious. It felt in that sense, it didn't feel so much like a stodgy formal conference. And it felt more like, you know, uh, a festival. <laughs> Um, also no, that's awesome. the venue is beautiful. It's where they had the expo 2020. So the buildings were incredible and there was some fantastic architecture and, and it was very professionally organized and, and, you know, it like, there was water everywhere. The bathrooms were really clean. Like it, it was just, you know, compared to what I've been told by people who were at Sharm El Sheikh last year, it, it was in a different league. Um, you know, it, Dubai, you know, it's, it's a very well organized city for visitors. So it's like, it's easy to get a hotel, you know, all, delegates all got like free Metro passes. So I took the Metro every day cause it was right next to my hotel. And, um, it just, it's just easy. So it, it wasn't like logistically difficult. Whereas I did hear that Egypt was much more logistically difficult. Interesting. Well, either way, it sounds like it was, it was a big success. I'm very excited to see what, what you and, and the Green Queen team come out with, with the, the summaries of the high level of important information. And then I'm going to go through all of it. I know for a fact I am, and, and I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners will want to also. Yeah. Tomorrow, we're also going to do a, a piece where I asked like 10 insiders, food insiders who were at COP from different backgrounds to give us like a take on how they felt. Um, so stay tuned for that because that that's a good one, you know, um, pe all kinds of different people, people from philanthropy, people from, from industry, people from think tanks, you know, all kinds of people. So we're looking forward to, to seeing everybody's thoughts tomorrow. Um, but it, and it, it's been super fun to like, to report on COP myself and NA every day and, and really just be in the thick of things, you know? And, and, and just be part of something that's like active and moving and changing all the time, including today where it just went into overtime. Almost like, I know yeah, that's almost, awesome. It almost feels like, you know, like, like, like it kind of makes me think of like sports and like people like sports announcers and like the teams and 
it kind of felt like that. Like we were all kind of on, on the on the sidelines, like watching the action, like getting the play by play, you know, figuring out what's gonna happen. Hey, that idea, I like that that analogy. Like the idea that this is a competition, a race to to beat beat climate change through food and and other approaches. Um, that would be a cool thing to to watch for sure. But but beyond beyond cop, let's let's dive into things a little bit. What's um do it. what's the big story this week? So the big story this week is um Heather Mills, a longtime British entrepreneur. Um also it must be said, she is also the former uh wife of, of Paul McCartney. Um so she has a, a legacy plant-based meat brand, very well known in the UK called V Bites. And uh, it's been in business for 30 years. And she's just announced that essentially it's going into administration. Um, she says that they failed to secure funding and that the costs have been rising and and it's been, she just isn't able to, to go on. Um, the company is one of the early plant-based uh, alternative companies. It, it was way earlier than, you know, a Beyond or, a, or an Impossible and, and was you know, as, as there were things like Tofurky and things like that, there were things like V-Bites in the UK. Um, uh, funnily enough, Paul McCartney's previous, other previous wife, his first wife, Linda McCartney, is also has a famous epon eponymous plant-based meat brand that, well, it's vegetarian, not vegan. Um, and that's still around. Uh, but essentially she, what's interesting here other than the fact, you know, that it's another plant-based brand that's just not surviving. This one is interesting because, because it's her, because it's 30 years, and because she's calling out corporate greed and misinformation as key reasons why things haven't worked out. Um, and that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I, I don't know V-Bytes... Um, right. It wasn't personally based, yeah. like I don't know Heather Mills and all that, but there's a reason why, right? The, and for me, I think the reason why is because I'm an early stage investor in this space, and I I focus on a traditional venture capital approach. The businesses that uh, that that fit with us are the ones that blatantly say we're trying to grow crazy, crazy, crazy fast, and we want to exit at some point. And have a big, big exit. And that's supposed to fit into the VC model, right? And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. That's a different discussion. But V-Bytes, they're around for 30 years. That is that is a, a, a traditional non-VC-backed business. And the thing that stood out to me the most was that it said that they announced a 25% profit in the 2021 to 2022 uh, fiscal year. And in my mind, if they're now failing, you, you have a profit of 25%, which is actually like very, very strong. I'm assuming that's, that's net profit and not like a, a gross profit margin or something like that. But if you have 25% profit in, in like a year ago and now you're going out of business, that all that proves to me is that decisions were made to change the trajectory of the business in some way. As an outsider, I have no idea what those decisions were, but it, it could be shifting the mindset after 30 years to let's grow at all costs. Let's push for crazy growth rates and take on new debt, take on new investment to push for that growth and, and change how, how fast we've been growing. That's what I have to assume was going on. And that's where I'd have to assume like corporate greed comes into it. Like Heather's saying that there's corporate greed as part of this. Right. So I'd imagine 
she sold a part of the business and new people came on. They said that they want to push this much faster, much bigger than what has existed in the past. And it's unfortunate because like there's a lot of press for all the VC backed businesses that raised bunch like raise tons of money and they grow really fast. Uh, but then sometimes they fail because they're not actually profitable businesses. So to see one that's been around for 30 years has been able to turn a profit and a strong profit, there was a chance this could have just continued indefinitely and grown organically. So maybe not super fast, but but still grown and had an impact. So this is unfortunate to see. Um, and I, I mean, I'm so curious of the actual details behind the scenes, but it's it's a really I, interesting one. I suspect more details will come through. Um I do think it is the first time, though, that someone is calling out misinformation, meat and dairy lobby misinformation campaigns as one of the reasons that their plant-based business has failed. Yeah, I wonder how they're like, how they're attributing that to this, because like, I I have to think think that like, maybe they're seeing like the campaigns coming out and then like revenues like directly dipping. I think I would say it's probably more likely my understanding is that the misinformation campaigns are affecting the macro funding situation environment Mm -hmm. where, you know, investors are just like less keen because they're starting to believe what's going on. Yeah, it's just so weird to me. Like, like, I get that. But if you're a profitable business, you don't need equity investors, right? You're not you're you could just continue indefinitely. So like, is it really affecting the debt markets? Maybe it is. Like the misinformation affecting the debt markets is a weird idea to me because you can just raise more debt if you're a profitable business. Like it just has to align with the cash flows that you have. And it's just a weird idea. I, I, I'm so, I want to know what, what actually went on behind the scenes and I don't. So, but it's, right. it's just and really interesting. We only know what's being said to the media. She did step down from the company board um, earlier this year. I don't know. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. It it's like so interesting, and it's like it's different dive. too. Like then, like yeah, I want to I want to dive deep. I want to know what the details are. But like in 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 the piece that you guys put out, it mentions how like there's like some some type of like similarity to the idea of like Heather Heather was was I, I guess she she either removed from the board or she left the company, and it brought up how like Miyoko had been removed from her board, and and like that's a that's there that that is a really interesting idea. Right. But like you almost expect it more with VC backed companies because like there is that I guess you want to call it corporate greed component that's expected. Like you, you, you know that the board is all about the financial returns. Right. Which is unfortunate a lot of the times. And that's not always the case in the in the sustainable food space because there's mission driven investors that exist as well. But but it's just like for for a profitable 30 year long standing business to have this type of thing happen. It's just like confusing i guess <laughs> I, don't I, wonder, know. I don't know i wonder what details i i suspect we're gonna get more details eventually or not but let's see let's yeah see. um all right what what else stood out to you yeah i mean the one thing that i wanted to call out and i, I it stood out to me right that's why i'm calling out it was the every company they debuted their what they're calling the hen free egg made through precision fermentation and they, they debuted it at um, 11 Madison Park, which for those who aren't familiar with it, it's one of the most prominent restaurants that e- exists in the world, Michelin starred. And, and I forget the exact timing, but it went from just being a Michelin star restaurant that's just known to be one of the best in the world to 
one that said, we're doing plant-based only. Right. And that was like a big, big way for our space. Cause it just says like, you don't need animal products to really be um, truly one of the best restaurants in the, in the, in the world. Um, and, and they've been doing this, these type of like one-offs with what you would call sustainable food companies, either doing plant-based or precision fermentation. Um, and, and I love seeing this, but the reason it's so interesting to me or why I got excited is because the every company, they started off as Clara Foods. I think it was like 2015 that they were started. And from the very beginning, the idea was replacing eggs with precision fermentation, like truly like eggs. And what they came out with a couple of years ago was super impre- impressive, but it wasn't egg products. They were like, there were different types of protein products that could be um, used as an ingredient and input. They had no color or no flavoring. Um, but this is exciting to me. This is them for the first time showing them doing what they set out to do in the first place, to create eggs through precision fermentation without the animal, create this idea of a stable supply chain, stable prices, et cetera. And it's at super small scale. It's, this, is, this is not rolled out everywhere. Um, but I'm excited to see the type of reception. It's the start of that, that expansion. And I'm excited to see the, the type of reception it gets because with precision fermentation, they are not creating the whole egg. Eggs have like 200 different like micronutrients and, and macronutrients that are in, involved with it and proteins, et cetera. This is, this is, they're creating one of the proteins from egg and then supplementing it with plant-based ingredients. And so it's not exactly the same thing. And I want to know how people receive it. Hopefully they receive it really, really well, but it's exciting to me. So congrats to the, the every team and um, Arturo over there. Um, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, he's he's so lovely. Um, yep, we actually uh got some follow up information. We're 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 coming out with an interview with Arturo uh, tomorrow, and um, we asked about everything. Of, of course, you're coming out with that. You're you're ahead of the curve always. <laughs> no, I mean, we had more questions, and so we were asking, for example, like, is this a one time thing? With by the way, um, the. 11 Madison is still a three Michelin starred restaurant, one of the few in the world. So it is very unique. And obviously most of their menu is not using alternative products. It's, it's using just classic whole foods, although they have done collaborations with, for example, plant-based honey startup Melly Bio, which has a, a honey called Melody. Um, so there is some, there is some precedent here. Um, this is a one-time event for every and 11 Madison, but the company tells me that they have more restaurant debuts planned for 2024. And we did also ask about, um, you know, what's in, like what else is in the, uh, you know, in, in the, in the, how do you say, um, in the product, right? Because obviously we were like, is it, it's not, we know that it's as, as we know from what happened with Formo and the whole story, you know, what is inside the, the actual product, because it's only one of the proteins. Um, so here's exactly what they said. Every egg is nature equivalent egg protein combined with beneficial plant-based fats, salt, and water to achieve a whole egg taste and texture. Our egg protein is the secret ingredient that enables every egg to deliver strong culinary performance across a multitude of dishes. So they haven't exactly said which protein that it is. Um, we actually went back and asked again, 
Um, but they are talking about the plant-based fats and then the salt and water. So it's protein. Interesting. Protein. Yeah. So that's what we know so far. Um, Super interesting. I had thought that, that like working, raises more questions. <laughs> I had thought they were working on ovoalbumin, the you know one of the main and most most well known proteins in egg. Um, but that's what I thought too. Like I'm an outsider for them, right? I, I mean, I've seen some random stuff over the years, but I thought that's what they were working on as well, like the egg white protein, the key key one in egg whites. But um, I I'm curious to know like why these companies aren't more transparent with that, right? Like, where, like, why at this point, when you're actually putting it out there for consumers to, to, to taste, why aren't you just like, yeah, this is exactly what's in it? Yeah, you, this or is like, uh, you've yeah. talked about before. Yeah, I mean, it, it bothers me because it's like, yes, yeah, with my consumer hat on, it's like, I don't want, I don't want to eat something if I don't know what's in it, right? Um, and I'm, I'm out here trying to, I'll, I'll eat any all protein sustainable food product, but I, I need to know what's in it. But like, secondarily, if you think about it from like an IP protection point of view, like you, I'd imagine you protected this IP. And even if you didn't, let's say you don't have a patent around the precision fermentation process to create the specific egg protein that you're creating. If you tell the world tomorrow that you're creating ovalbumin or whatever, whatever protein it's. It's not like all of a sudden, like Steve Molino or some other scientist is going to be like, I can go do that exact protein tomorrow and I could create it at the same titers or yields that you could produce it at, at the same scale with the same costs. Like you can't just like recreate a company overnight. So like, I don't know. I feel like it's almost like it, it, it I don't want to insinuate that it's a sign of weakness that you're, you're worried about the, the defensibility of it, but like. If you if shouldn't you be just very transparent and open with what you're putting out there for people to eat? That's that, and that's not just the thing at the every company. That's like a nope. lot of different companies that's in the space. Absolutely, and and just to be clear, um, you know, most people to this day still don't know that Impossible Foods, um, some of their key products have this ingredient called heme that is made using precision fermentation. And when they first mm -hmm. launched, you know, they weren't very uh, they, they didn't go into a lot of detail on precision fermentation as a process, right? They, they presented themselves as a plant-based company. So I think sometimes what I hear from companies is this kind of idea that we don't want to focus on the tech. We just want to focus on like the occasion or the solution that we're solving for. Um, and, you know, which I, mean, I think I, is important. I like that. That's a good point. People don't eat technology. They eat food. But when, when, a reporter, like when Green Queen asks you, what's the, what's the protein? Like, why not answer? Like the consumer might not even read this article. This is more so for people in the space, whether it's investors or other reporters or whatever. Like, I just don't get it. I don't get why it's so cagey around that information. It, it seems, it makes no sense. To be fair, we have gone back to them and, and asked them a follow-up. So we will let you know. So stay tuned for the interview where we share more, but it's, let's, let's go with this. The, they, they did not choose to, to go forward with that, with that information. Sure. And again, and again, like, I'm not trying to like make this about the every company. You, you, you already said, like, I've talked about this before. Like this is a lot of companies in this space. Um, it's just a weird idea. Like you're not just asking for people's dollars or something. You're asking for people to put 
food in their mouth. Like that's, let's be hyper, hyper transparent. Agreed. Um, agreed. So what's next? What's our, what's our happy story of the day? Yeah. So the positive is actually, this is an interesting one. So like, for people listening, so Nolly and I, we meet up right before we, we we do the podcast and we go through like, what do we want to talk about? And um, and it's funny because you, Sonali, you brought up wanting to talk about um, the report that came out from Digital Food Labs. So um, basically, of course, I can't find it as I'm, as I'm going through here. Um, but Basically, a report came out from Digital Food Lab that goes over the, the key the key verticals within the food space, and then also what are the trends that are happening, um, and what is it on the, the Gartner hype cycle. And we both were sitting there just being like, "This was a great report. Like, this is the, it's not just like a thought a thought piece or something like that. It really goes into the detail. Every single um, vertical, and then the sub verticals within those were well thought out and put on the hype cycles and reasonings why and examples and things like that. And we're like, let's make this the positive. And the reason why this is the positive is because there's a lot of crap <laughs> that's out there, right? Like you and I joke about it all the time that like, like, man, there's so much stuff that's like on LinkedIn where people come up with a thought piece and they just, and, and, they, they share their thoughts on a part of the industry and is it always good no sometimes it's really not well thought out and it might have taken an hour to write this this report is very detailed it's not just about one topic and like it it's i, I love it let's just put it that way i love it and the one thing i want to call it just to like because i was reading it and i, I obviously I went to the protein section like as, as the, the main category that i wanted to learn about first i give the creator of this report, so much credit. They moved the plant-based space on the Gartner hype cycle. They moved it backwards. And for people that don't know what this hype cycle thing is, it's basically the idea that it shows any technology or innovation, where's that it at in terms of maturation from going from just an idea all the way to completely disrupting an industry and being accepted by the market. And there's ebbs and flows. To move something backward, I actually haven't seen that before. Maybe it's been done, but like, I, and I agree with it too. Like plant-based is, it seemed like it was coming to the mass market and we, we got through like any disillusionment or negative ideas. And then now it seems like, no, it's, it's getting crushed from a consumer expectation or reception standpoint. And, and even investors are down on it. So it's moved backwards, but it's pretty rare for someone to say, yeah, I, I'm moving this backwards on this trend. So I'm talking a lot about the, the report, but the, the high level is I think this is a positive because it's actual well thought out detailed analysis of the, the food space as a whole, the food tech space. And I love it. I, I love it. I love it. Okay. I have, I have so many thoughts on this. So quick overview about Mathieu Vincent, the founder of Digital Food Lab based in Paris, French uh, fellow, very smart, very experienced sold his food tech startup many years ago, exited, and was the first to start doing food tech meetups in Paris, I think almost 10 years ago. Um, so really early in the space, been around a long time, is now a consultancy. Him and his partner, they run a consultancy where they work with big food companies to help them basically identify trends and innovation and embed food technology in their business plans. They work with all the major big FMCG uh, uh, food companies that you can imagine in, in the world, but specifically in Europe. 
Um, they're very, very uh, experienced. And I am going to call this a win for experience and expertise. Um, I am going to be very, very upfront and say that I am just so tired of social media um, platforming people who basically have no clue what they're talking about. And the problem is the algorithms do not provide the curation that a good editor or a good curator or, or experience provides. And so what's happening is that everyone's point of view is being given equal, uh, you know, equal platforming when the reality is that most people are not experts. And we also live in a society where we absolutely like we lionize youth and, and, and the opinions of the young. And it's ridiculous. Um, there is something to be said for experience. And what Mathieu has is decades of experience. And that's why his work, and if you're not subscribed to his newsletter, this is a plug for it. He It comes out every week. It's in English. Um, you should be subscribed to it if you're in food. Um, and then he comes out with all these reports. So this is his fourth trends report. Um, but he also does reports on European food tech, Scandinavian food tech, uh, um, U.S. food tech. He he breaks down the big trends and he has great analysis. It's usually a short, quick read. So it's a great kind of a, every Wednesday. I know I'm going to get it and there's going to be something that I learn. And I'm sorry, but you just you, there's some there's something to be said for this experience. Um, and we need to we need to find a way in this sea of disinformation and misinformation and over-information to really elevate the experts and the people who know what they're talking about. Because if we're gonna make better decisions for our businesses, for our lives, for, for whatever it is we're doing, we need better quality information inputs. Um, and you know, it's, it's like that famous statistic about how actually the most successful entrepreneurs um, are usually ones that are over 45. Whereas like the way it seems based in the media is that you have to be like an 18 year old wunderkind to be a billionaire. That's the only path forward. That's actually not what the stats show overall. Like on average, it is much better to have experience. And I, it's, it's funny, like sometimes I spend time with people who are new to this space or who've just kind of joined the industry and, and LinkedIn and social media just give a warped view of what is you know what matters because there's no curation and so yeah huge win and um yeah definitely and, and like it shows though like I, I i see a million reports all the time on this space ag tech food tech whatever and i tend to like skim through them really quickly just to see if it's even worthwhile and i'd say most of the time i don't end up reading them this one i skim through I'm like Oh, interesting. Okay. I have to stop. And I stopped yeah. and I read the whole thing because it was actually oh. worthwhile. So this is a good one. And also everyone, this is our last podcast of the year. We'll be back in January. The next week,